calling us to be a part of a local body for the purpose of discipleship, to enter into intentional for the purpose of accountability, and for the purpose of exhibiting submission, to create an environment for potential leaders in the body of Christ. Now, why do we speak of these things now? Because our church has seen a significant growth just in the last year. And as we have talked about adding a third service, the elders said, you know what? We need to really put the brakes on that and just ask ourselves, are we really healthy as a church? And are there things that maybe we all need to realize, and especially for all those that are new to Christ's community, we want to make sure that everyone understands exactly what is expected. Isn't that a fair thing? I mean, the natural question is to ask, okay, now that I am a committed participant, then what? What are the expectations of those in the body of Christ? What must each person do as a committed participant? I hope that we can build a biblical case for that. So I'd encourage you to take notes and write this down. The first one is this, that every believer must take personal responsibility, personal responsibility for his or her own spiritual health. This is a hard sell today, I'll admit it, because we live in a culture in which congregants are consumers, and the church puts itself in a position where it has to create a product that people desire. And it's kind of the tail wagging the dog. Instead of God dictating the agenda, we tickle ears. But if a church is to maintain good health over the long haul, each participant has to take responsibility for their own spiritual health. Now, certainly, church leaders are responsible. They're responsible to teach the whole counsel of God, responsible to manage the house of God with great care, teaching the Word of God, equipping the saints, protecting the saints. All these are responsibilities on the part of leadership. However, each and every person in the body of Christ is responsible, get this, is responsible for their spiritual health regardless of what the church leadership does. Do you get that? It is the truth. I'm not minimizing the influence of leadership, nor am I suggesting that leaders can be negligent without consequence. But the point is, is that each of us are responsible to grow and mature regardless of what the person next to us does. And let me give you a newsflash. This is not the perfect church. You will find issues with me and with this church. I hate to burst your bubble. And let me give you another newsflash. There's not one around. There is no perfect church, right? It's the truth. And let me tell you something. This is not a burden. This is freedom. You know why it's freedom? Because, my friends, we are not bound to duplicate the failures of other churches, of this leadership, of other leaders, of your church, of your pastor, of your parents, of your friends, of your Christian friends who let you down. 
of your spouse or whoever else we are prone to blame for our failures. I can grow and I can mature regardless of what other people do. We have to grow up. We have to accept responsibility. The battlefield is strewn with many Christians blaming people from their past for their present state of lethargy and inactivity. I'm not denying the hurts. I'm not denying the pain. It's very real. Well, then let's deal with it. Many of us as Christians resemble the guy who's got a huge gash in his body or a broken arm and refuses to go to the emergency room. Everyone around you can see that you're in pain and hurting. Get well, get healthy, do whatever it is to get yourself in a place where you're healthy. And you know what? For many people, what that means is you have to forgive those who have failed you or hurt you from your past. And by the way, forgiveness is something you do for yourself to be healthy. Walking in bitterness poisons your system. And it gives that offense continual power over you. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that he did not want us to be outwitted by Satan, to be deceived by Satan, who would keep us wrapped up in unforgiveness and bitterness. He lies to us that, you know what, I'm going to get back at that other person by not forgiving them. We, you know, we think we're not going to let them hurt us again by not forgiving. But in fact, all we're doing is allowing the hurt to fester and to poison our spirits. We're the victims, and we continue to be victimized because we choose to be. And there are some of you, God bless you, but you're the perpetrators of the hurt. You've offended a brother or sister, or harmed or abused, or caused pain. And you need to confess it. You need to confess it to the Lord and humble yourself to those you have hurt and confess it to them as well. Some of you parents have injured your children and you've hidden behind your pride or claims of authority to keep from facing truth. And your pride is a barrier to your own spiritual health. James says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Well, what's a double-minded person? It's a person who thinks that he or she and God are okay and they've got people that they've hurt and they've not humbled themselves to confess that before God and others. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Be wretched and mourn and weep. It's a way of just acknowledging the sin and the pain that we've caused. And we acknowledge the pain that we've caused. We weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And then what will happen? He'll exalt you. He'll bring healing. He'll bless that. 
taking responsibility, my friends, means dealing with the truth of our own lives. But you know what it also means? It means dealing with the truth of God's word. Read the word. Meditate on the word. Soak the word up. Make it a part of your regular routine. John wrote in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification is a fancy word that basically refers to the the process of spiritual transformation of us being, being transformed into the image of Christ. And John is saying we can only grow, we can only be transformed as we immerse ourselves in the word of God. The psalmist said it this way, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Because the person doesn't stumble who loves the law, who's immersed in the word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Did you check that out? That the man of God may be competent, equipped for how many good works? It sounds to me like this is irreplaceable. It sounds to me like we need this. Jeremiah describes the right attitude when he says, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Couldn't be any clearer. We are to read the word, to make this a part of our lives, to love it. You know, if if this is completely new to you, just start by reading maybe a, a chapter a day. Read, start with the book of John would be a great place to start. Read a chapter, get a little notebook and start writing down questions you may have or things that you don't understand and, and maybe get with another older Christian who could help you and maybe answer some of your questions. Besides soaking in the word of God if we want to be healthy, besides dealing with the truth in our own lives, dealing with the truth from the word of God, you know what else we have to do? We have to communicate with God, Right? We have to pray. Keep it simple. Just start by by thanking God for his goodness. Extol to him his virtues. Confess your sin. Ask for him things in your own life, things for others. You know, if we're honest with God about our own stuff, and you ask him for things, believing he's big enough to do it, Don't you think, as a kind Heavenly Father, He wants to help us? He wants to answer our prayers in the affirmative when we're asking in His will? Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 66, 19 and 20. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because He has not rejected my prayer or removed His steadfast love from me. You know what this says to me? I can speak to Him about my concerns. Thank him daily. I try to use the little acrostic. It's not new. ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. A real simple way to remember some of the elements that I want to include in my prayers. So our first point speaks to us being responsible in our relationship with God. Our second point speaks to us being responsible with our relationship with others. And it's this, that every believer 
Let's contribute to the unity of the body of Christ. What's expected? You're expected to keep your relationship with God healthy. And secondly, you're expected to keep your relationships with others in the body of Christ healthy. Did you know this? That when we operate in unity as a body of Christ, that we are an answer to Jesus' prayers? Do you know that? He's prayed this very thing. Listen to John 17, verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, speaking of his disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Everyone else after that who's a believer. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, and me are one, and I in you. That they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. I want you to notice something very important. That before the unity in verse 20... There needs to be a common belief. There needs to be a common truth. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. There's, there are beliefs that we have to be united on in order for unity to take place. There is no spiritual unity without doctrinal unity in the essential truths around Jesus Christ. We can hold, hold hands We can sing songs together. We can have a group hug. We can agree to do many kind deeds for the community. But until our hearts are knit together around the truth of the gospel, all these things are merely human events. And it's not spiritual unity. Unity is not syncretism where we blend together people of varying religions who have entirely different views on who Jesus is, on what he's done, who differ on whether his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to forgive sins. That's not unity. Unity is not conformity either, where there is a, there's a forced uniformity to external codes, where everybody has to dress the same. All the women have to have the same hairdo. We have have to accept the same legalistic standards in the church. That's not unity. Unity is the spiritual effect of the Holy Spirit bonding Christians together in faith, covenant, and relationships. This is a very real and authentic Connection. Notice from verse 20, the reality of the Trinity forms a backup for unity. And that unity becomes a powerful tool in drawing others to Christ. Do you know what the best marketing plan is for a church? It's not billboards. It's not TV ads. It's not a great musical You know what it is? It's not to to meet the felt need to tickle the ear. You know what the best marketing tool is for any church? It's the love of the saints. Unity. Look what Jesus said. He asked for the unity of the saints so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's how they're going to know. Our ability to relate 
with genuine affection to one another, to be united in heart and mind on the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's a powerful bond. It's effective. And you know what? We have seen people come to Christ because of this within our own church. I sat with another family with a lady whose husband has been ministered to here by our body, and she came to Christ because of the love of this body. Let me tell you something. It works, right? The love. It's palpable. We see this like, why do you do this? Let me tell you why. (laughs) His name is Jesus. The reason churches are divided is because they do not understand the real basis of unity. They think they have to agree on every item, that we have to look alike, that we have to be maybe controlled by a powerful leader, and we're all like lemmings, that we have to accept the same cultural behavioral code. But Paul said there is no other foundation other than that which is found in Jesus Christ. And you know what? The Corinthian church especially was rife with division. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, Paul points to their spiritual immaturity, their inability to accept deep truths from the word of God as a main cause. Listen to what he says. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants. You are babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food. For you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. Clearly our ability to handle truth and our willingness to not muddy the waters with other standards for unity. It's the essential truths of the gospel that bonds us together. Not that we get the same haircut. Not that we agree not to go to movies. Not that we agree on drinking. Not that we agree on our eschatology. Not that we agree that women shouldn't work. Not that we agree on where our kids should go to school. That is not the elements of our unity. The elements of our unity are the gospel. You know, these measures, I have to admit, if we were to write all this down... And, and, and say that, well, all this list of things that we, sh- we should do, it's frankly easier, and we may feel safer by doing that. But I think we accept a substitute then. It's a fake unity. It's contrived. It's manipulative. It's man-centered. Unity is a spiritual reality, listen, that is fundamentally expressed in the essential truths of the gospel. We saw it in Galatians 2, where Paul was chastising two groups that couldn't get along with each other because they were allowing other things to determine unity instead of the essentials of the gospel. Without the doctrine, without the truth, there is no unity. But unity is also expressed relationally. It is practical. And when Paul addressed the church in Ephesians, we see the doctrinal and relation um, aspects 
perfectly woven together. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 4, 13 through 16. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Don't we see that today? So many Christians are duped by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth, he doesn't stop there, speaking the truth with a certain methodology. And what's the methodology? In love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It produces right relationships. We humble ourselves before one another. We love one another. We're attentive to needs. You know why? Because we are of the same spiritual family. And it's the gospel that unites us. And that's what family does. Family is loyal. It should be. (laughs) Family sticks together and cares for one another. So listen, every person has to take responsibility for their own spiritual health. And every believer has to contribute to the unity of the body of Christ. And lastly, every believer uses his or her gifts to participate in the mission of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7 says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone, everyone gifted, everyone empowered by the Holy Spirit, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the health of the body, each person is given a gift to participate, to serve. 1 Peter 4.10 adds, as each has received a gift, use it. To serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Every believer in the body of Christ is on a mission. And every believer in the body of Christ is given a gift to fulfill that mission. Every believer is to serve, is to play a part. There is no such thing as a growing, maturing Christian who does not serve. Doesn't exist. You may think of yourself as one, you are deluded. Sitting on your rear end, doing nothing for several years is not maturing. It's delusional. You don't mature without serving, period. Not just within these walls. I'm just talking about serving others. Somehow using your gifts. A survey was done with Christians where they were asked, to what extent has your ministry or service to others affected your spiritual growth. 92% answered that serving others impacted their spiritual growth positively. 58% of those who were not actively ministering to others felt not satisfied. Duh. (laughs) Listen, here's some things that I think we need to grab hold of when it comes to service. It's not a solitary obligation. It's always connected to spiritual factors. Listen to what 1 Samuel 12, 24 says. Only fear the Lord 
and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he's done for you. Did you catch that last part? When we consider the great things he has done for us, it increases our capacity to serve. In other words, our gratitude to God, our grappling with how good God is, is an incredible impetus for service. We could say it this way. You don't serve, you have a small view of God. Psalm 102 says, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Is that your experience? Serving with gladness? If not, I want you to consider some of the other aspects that impact our willingness and enjoyment in serving. There's a very telling story about the disciples who gathered together just before Jesus went to the cross. You probably remember the story if you've read through the Gospels. He meets for one final time for supper. He wants to share with them some important truths. He wants to gather them together, enjoy the moments as his closest friends. And then we see a beautiful moment in Luke 22, 24, where it says, in this setting, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. You say, it sounds like Thanksgiving dinner at our house. And if you've experienced the pain of the arguments of family getting together, that's exactly what was taking place. It was meant as something joyous and celebrative, but it ends in an argument about who's the big cheese, about who's going to get the most notice, Who's the most important? Not exactly thinking about serving one another, as Jesus wanted them to do. So you know what Jesus proceeds to do? He goes around to each of them, and if you know the story, you know what happens. And he begins doing what? Washing their feet. The King of kings and Lord of lords kneeling with a basin and towel and water. And washing their feet. And by the way, that was only what a servant did because obviously with their sandals walking all around on a dusty road, it was a dirty job. You don't do that. Especially as king of king and lord of lords, our Messiah. Uh, yeah. Leadership is best exhibited in servanthood. This is what he was doing. Notice some obvious characteristics of this service in the account. that's also talked about in John 13 of this Last Supper. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I want you to notice that service, service is an act of love. I think it's interesting that some 50 years after the event, John was writing about this event. And as he looks back, the thing that, that so impressed him was the love of Christ that motivated him to serve. I mean, he knew Jesus. He's the one that says that of all the disciples, he's the one that Jesus loved the most. They had the closest relationship. Jesus knew what was up ahead in a cross. He knew that there at this table sat his betrayer. He knew that he would be delivered up to the authorities for execution. And yet John says he chose to love us until the end. He didn't take the time to reminisce. 
He loved and served us. He taught us. His concern was for us and our well-being so that we could be prepared for what's up ahead. Jesus was so secure in the love of the Father that he could love his disciples who were so needy. His love expressed in servitude. Our love for God, our love for one another starts with understanding that we love him because what? He first loved us. And that unconditional love, I know nothing can ever change that. That gives me security and significance. I can go out and love others and I can serve. It's an act of love. Service is also an outflow of worship. We read it of Jesus in verse 3 of John 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And then he washed their feet. Notice, he knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. He had known all the things that had been given to him by the Father. This was not head knowledge. This was experiential, intimate awareness. Now, let me ask you this. A very important question. If you had no awareness of your calling from God, no knowledge of his purpose for your life, no connection with God, with what he desired for you, how would that change your service? That's everything. Understanding these things, worshiping God on this level. Show me a person who doesn't intimately know the love and grace of God, and I will show you someone who is fearful on the sidelines, who's licking their wounds. You know, many are not serving well because they're not worshiping well. 1 Peter 4.11 says, Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Worship is the conduit that taps into God's strength. Without it, we have no fuel. Lastly, service is a source of joy and blessing. It's a source of joy and blessing. Listen to this introduction, excuse me, this instruction of Jesus to his disciples in verses 12 through 17 of John 13. When he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. You are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you when you do these things, when you serve, when you wash one another's feet. You know, you know what I think? I think the reason that so many Christians are so bored and disillusioned with the Christian life is because they do not yet know the joy of serving. I have found that my closest relationships are with those that I serve with together. Titus 3.14 says, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. We have to be attentive to the needs of the body 
and be responsive to those needs. That's what brings fruitfulness. Why? Because this shows the grace of God that's been exhibited in our own lives and it meets needs. And that's a blessing. And here's a great thing. God... God will bring about fruit from this. And, the, the, you know, the, the fruit may be in your own heart. The fruit may be from others who see you and encouraged by it. The fruit may be the recipients of your service. Either way, service brings blessing. You know, many of you I know are new to our church. There are many ways you can get connected through a discovery group, through a home fellowship group, through a life group. But my friends, serving, I think, does it better than anything else. Of knitting our hearts together in a powerful way. I want to talk to someone about this who for a period of time did not serve, did not want to serve. I know because he's my son. Kyle, come up here. I want to talk to you about this for a second. I called Kyle last night, asked him if he'd be willing to do this. Had to pay him 20 bucks, but uh, he said he'd... I'm going to ask you this question about, tell me what your life was like when you weren't serving. How did that impact your spiritual walk? Um, well, um, I was a pastor's kid, of course, and lived in a pastor's home, came to church every Sunday for 20 years, and um, was just empty. And I just, I, I would come and get out as quick as possible. And I just did not want people to know what I thought of church and did not want them to know my past, my weaknesses. So I just thought it was an easy thing just to get out and I didn't want to serve. And so, um, yeah, that was my life before kind of. What was the turning point for you? I think a lot of it, kind of like what Gary was saying in worship, um, he's saying, you know, if you have no hope, seek out an elder or, you know, a pastor or a counselor. And I was even too prideful for that. And um, I just did not, I thought I was too cool for school in this case, too cool for church. Um, and I didn't do anything about it. And I just kind of waited for God to do something in my life and, you know, wanted him to do something miraculous. And it actually took a father-son kind of talk. And um, it took one of those things where my dad came up to me and he's reading some kind of book. I think it was something about when uh, godly people do ungodly things. And he was saying how, you know, I'm not mad at you, I'm not disappointed in you, but it truly, honestly, breaks my heart to see the way you're living your life. And he knew, I mean, I was checked out, and he knew I didn't like church and didn't want to come, and um, that was a huge turning point. And um, when he told me that, I kind of registered, you know, pretty deep. And um, that's when he asked me to go on this um, trip with him to Russia, and um I think that's where God truly showed me a, a true meaning of serving. I'd never seen so many, you know, young kids and um, children and adults on up to about 70 years old just serve. And they were so happy with it. And, I would, and I'm not saying that God needs to take you to a different country to see that, but for me, that's what it was. And, yeah, I truly saw that was kind of a turning point. And then God just kind of started facilitating all kinds of decisions and uh, um, wanted me to move and uh, serve at a different church, and, um, and then I came back, and I couldn't get enough of it, and I probably overloaded myself a little too much, too. <laughs> well, the whole trajectory of your life really changed uh, after that trip to Russia. Uh, pastor there from Philly asked you to come and serve there at that church, and you were there a year. Tell me 
some of the observations you made while you were there, things that maybe impacted you? A lot of things that impacted me. It was a very unchurched area. Um, um, and a lot of younger kids, like I said, children and people on up to 70s, 80s year, year old. And um, I actually had to lead a group, a serving group. Was, and we actually had about 70 volunteers. And to see just a whole group of all those 70 people just be so cheerful and serving and wanting to uh, do God's work and wanting to greet, you know, um, wanting to hand out food or snacks to people was just great. I'm, I'd never seen it. And I had always thought that, you know, you had to be an adult to serve and you had to, you know, let the adults take care of it and kids could never be involved. But I would, here was 21, 22-year-old leading a group of 70 people to serve. And um, God definitely worked in my heart just to show me and how, you know, it doesn't matter where you come from, what background, what age, you know, you can serve no matter what. And there, it truly, there was this connection that was pretty incredible, which, and when I came back, I just told my dad, I have to get in the church. I have to serve, you know, no matter what it is. And because I don't want to lose that connection. And it truly was something that was um, different. Unlike anything I'd seen in my 20 years, you know, while I was a pastor's kid. So. Okay, now, no bull. What was the What's been the effect of you serving now? Have you actually had joy? Is it cumbersome? What uh, What is God doing in your heart now as you're serving? This is not a sales pitch, I promise. But <laughs> no, it truly changed my view of church. Um, it truly changed the way, um, you know, my excitement about coming. And, you know, I can't wait to see everyone here and look forward to seeing people. And um, I know people now. You know, I know a lot more, you know, before than I probably knew my specific friends that I wanted to see and maybe go to lunch with afterwards. But um, it changed a lot. And, you know, I have mentors now. I have a lot of men that I meet with for lunch a lot. And, you know, and that's all through just taking classes, you know, like men's classes or just, you know, whether it's working with the media team or Sunday school. Yeah, it truly changed my way of serving there and my whole outlook on just going to church and and I love it more. I really do. And I just can't get enough of it. And I even joked with my wife the other day, you know, we're probably involved with too many things to where, you know, sometimes we don't even have, you know, time for each other. And I don't encourage you too, you know, too much, but um, it definitely, definitely did change a lot of my outlook on church and serving for sure. Yeah, there have to be boundaries. Yeah. And, and I don't want to, you know, tell you to, hey, serve anywhere, do whatever you can and get burnt out. But, you know, definitely has to be a balance. And, you know, and I'm seeing that now as well. And, um, but I just can't get enough of it for sure. All right. Thanks, bud. Appreciate it.